time. So thanks for everybody that prayed. And now we turn our attention to the women who aren't going away, but they'll be here. And for $25, you're going to get a workbook. And let me say this about Jerry Scazzaro, the guest speaker. There are already men conspiring with Keith Schleifer how to serve at this event because they want to hear Jerry Scazzaro. She is phenomenal. Her and her, she and her husband lead Emotional Healthy Spirituality, which is really becoming a movement. And uh, they're almost impossible to get. I can't believe we got her. Uh, it's going to resonate in our church for a long, long time. Uh, she's the best women speaker I ever heard. She's on par with any man I've ever heard. So, ladies, listen, we had people at the men's retreat, guys who flew guys in from around the country and paid for them to go. And that was at $180 a pop. Ladies, this is $25. You get a workbook. Round people up, moms, dad, you know, moms sisters, uh, girlfriends from college. Make sure you make this a priority. Uh, for those of you who were at the men's retreat, we ran out of Gordon McDonald's A Resilient Life. I think we have a few left here. Uh, for the men that were there, Gordon goes through the questions you should be asking in your teen years, your 20s, your 30s, all the way till you're 80. And um, they're deeper in the book. So make sure you pick this up. And then everything we're doing this month is in our February highlights. You didn't get one on the way in, but on the way out, they're in the racks there. So uh, make sure you pick them up. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and in January, I began a series called Life's Necessary Ingredients. And the premise of the series is I believe there were necessary ingredients uh, in our lives, in a life that would flourish and fulfill and maximize the reason for why God put you on the planet. Uh, so far, we looked at four. We've looked at purpose, intimacy, Courage and resiliency. And there's a lot of information in these messages. If you missed a few, go out on our web or download our app. You can listen to the messages online. And, and the one I really want you to listen to is when Chief Kelvin Co Cochran was here about courage. If you missed that day, it was, it was incredible just to be in his presence. This is, a, this is a, a, a black young boy who grew up in the South in a very prejudiced time who rose to be the number one firefighter in the land a uh, 30-year career fireman who loses his job because he writes a devotional, and then God kind of reboots him to tell his story, and now he's an executive pastor. Um, so great to go out and hear those messages, and we've received great feedback on all the messages, but let me tell you this. Today, by far, will be the best message of the series. Come on, guys. Optimism. <laughs> We're talking about Optimism. Can I really talk about optimism and not say it's going to be the best of the series? So I want to start with the proverbial glass of water, right? And I'm not going to ask you how many think it's half full and how many think it's half empty. You know why? I already know. Because the Gallup Corporation exists, there's a poll for everything, okay? So Gallup did a poll, and a whopping 80% of people said, we're optimists, which staggered me because I don't experience that in life. I don't experience in church or anywhere I go. Eight out of ten people are not optimistic. And I thought, well, yeah, I get it because who's going to say they're a pessimist on a survey, right? Who's going to say we're Eeyore? We'll never make it. I'll never amount to anything. Nobody's ever going to admit to that, right? So Gallup redid the questions, and they put out another study. Look on the screen. Now we find about what we expect, right? 50% of the people would be optimists, but only four people still think they're pessimists. And you know why, because every pessimist you've ever run into says they're a realist, okay? Let me declare something at the beginning of my message. 
Uh, most of us are labeled from a very small age. People put labels on us. They say what we can do, will do, may do. And I want to tell you this. God does not define you by who you are. The story of the Bible is he sees what you can be in Christ. And you need to hear this with all your heart. I am not the man I am today I'm not that I was 20 years ago. In Christ, I have grown. I have become something because there's a new man. There's an inner man. And uh, by the way, if you are naturally optimistic, it has almost nothing to do with your spirituality. It has everything to do with your family of origin, the experiences you had at an early age, and your temperament. Uh, to make the world go around, God made some of us to be, uh, you know, Melancholy, he made some of us to be uh, excited. He made some of us to have all different types of personalities. It what ma- it's what makes the world go around. But God sees us how we can be. And to show you that, I want to tell you the story of Gideon. It's one of my favorite stories. It's in Judges chapter 6. Uh, the backstory is Gideon lives at a time where Israel's getting their clock cleaned by a people group called the Midianites. They're like the proverbial bully that steals your kid's lunch money, Right? They would wait until Israel planted their grain, the harvest would come, and at the last minute they would come and wipe it out. And we find this man Gideon threshing grain in a wine press in a cave. Now, if you know anything about threshing grain, you do it in the open air so the wind can separate the wheat from the chaff. But Gideon, in fear, is in a wine press. Now, I want to pick up the story in uh, verse 11. I'll read it to you. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith tree, which was an Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abarizite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. He's in fear. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, get this, you mighty man of valor. This guy whose knees are knocking in a cave, God says, you're a mighty man of valor, Gideon. And Gideon answers and said, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Anybody ever ask that question? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Pretty pessimistic, wouldn't you think? Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Sounds like Eeyore to me, right? And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. God didn't see Gideon as he was. He saw him the way he could be. Jesus didn't look at Peter the way he was. He saw him as a rock and what he could be. And that's the way he sees you and me. Yes, some of us are timid, bold, upbeat, or melancholy. Those are all natural characteristics. It has almost nothing to do with spirituality. I'll give you an example. If you ever want a self-esteem boost, call me, and I'll take you to my wife's house on Christmas Day. Now, they're Irish, and they have seven kids, and so there's about 30 of us there, and I've been going for 30 years, and you'll see people you never knew because they just add people on and pick people up on the streets. Never make more food. They just keep adding people on. And I'm Italian, so that bothers me. But anyway, their love language is words of affirmation. And you could be divorced, out of work, addicted, and they'll tell you how wonderful you are and how great you are. And my wife grew up in that environment, and I get to bask in that because she tells me that every day. And it's just 
the way we were raised and its temperament. What I'm going to talk to you about this morning is what I call faith-based optimism. It's an optimism based on an inner man, the dynamic of the spirit. Next week, we're going to start the book of Ephesians. And Paul begins Ephesians like this, and it's not an introduction. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And all through Ephesians, you're going to see this phrase, in him, in Christ. There's this spiritual bank account where there's already every blessing, and life is about making withdrawals. That word blessing there is more akin to the Old Testament word shalom which means God has given us everything necessary for joy and peace in Christ in heavenly places. That's a game changer, folks. That's the bank account you and I are drawing from. That's why Paul goes on to say in the book of Ephesians that he bows his knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that you may know the height, the width, the depth, to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Your identity is not in your temperament. It's in Christ in you. It's what Gideon experienced. And it's with all the resilient people in the Bible experienced faith-based optimism. Dennis Prager has a syndicated radio show. You may listen to it. He's written a book called Happiness is a Serious Problem. By the way, happiness and optimism are twins, okay? They're used almost interchangeable. Now, the strange thing about his book is uh, the happiness movement within psychology is a burgeoning movement, and it didn't even exist 30 or 40 years ago, which is so strange because at a time where Americans had little, we almost never talked about happiness, and now that we have way too much, there's this field called happiness psychology. And that's why I started in the book of Ecclesiastes because Solomon already told us that nothing will make you happy without God. There is a void in you. There is eternity in your heart that only God can fulfill. Now Prager says something fascinating and he says it from a secular perspective. He said, we as human beings have a moral obligation to be as happy as we can to people we interact with. Let that sink in for a minute. He said, we have a moral obligation to be as happy as we can to the people we interact with. He gives three reasons. Let me read them to you. Number one, he said, at a moment's reflection, it's obvious. We owe it to our husband, our wife, our fellow workers, our children, and our friends, indeed to everyone who comes into our lives, to be as happy as we can be. This doesn't mean we act unreal. It doesn't mean we refrain from honest and intimate expressions of our feelings to those closest to us. But it does mean that we owe it to others to work on our happiness. We do not enjoy being around others who are unusually unhappy. Those who enter our lives feel the same way. Ask a child what it's like to grow up with an unhappy parent or ask any parent who grew up with an unhappy child and they'll tell you what it was like. Now, the common sense there is we owe it to one another. So here's what I tell our staff, and wherever you work, this may apply. Uh, There's 20-something of us here. And what I say is on any given day, we all have a backpack of problems. We're all going through something, right? We're raising kids. we're, We're going through the things of life. And what we need to do is set them aside, and we owe it to one another to bring our best effort. That's why we're here. Now, if someone has two backpacks of problem. We'll sit down, we'll cry, we'll pray, but generally we owe it to one another to be happy. 
Number two, he said when you're happy or optimistic, you act more decently, right? You smile, you open doors, you're kind, you don't honk horns, etc. But here's the compelling reason. Again, from a secular standpoint, he said, and it, if you're religious of any bent, he said people may actually believe you more. Hear what he's saying? He's saying as Christians, if you're optimistic and happy, people might say, um, there might be something there. There's a source to their happiness. Amistad's one of my favorite movies. It's about black slaves who were being transported from Africa that, that had a mutiny on the ship, wound up killing the crew, and they were tried in Boston for murder. So every day when they were on trial, the abolitionists would come up wearing black clothing. Uh, they were quite sad looking, and they had big Bibles. And of course, the Africans didn't know who they were, and the Africans would converse, and there were subtitles. And they would say something like, uh, here come those people again. What's that book they all carry? And why do they look so sad? Now, I understand that there are grave things in life. But how many people may say that of us? Those guys next door are Christians. They got a big book they walk out with every Sunday. They do this and that. Why are they so sad? Why are they so negative? Why are they so down on everything? Zig Ziglar was a popular motivational speaker, salesman. And when he became a Christian, he wrote a book called The Happy Christian. You know why? He said, I was so stinking happy before Christ that when I became a Christian, I couldn't imagine why every Christian shouldn't be happy. And then his daughter died at 43 years old. And he wrote a book I give out more than I wish I had to called The Grieving Christian. And the reason I love that book is because what Zig Ziglar said is, happiness is not dependent on circumstances. It doesn't define who we are that we're drawing from a deeper well, that faith-based optimism comes from the well of salvation, from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what David wrote about in the Psalms. And so I want to point you to David this morning. Could have taken you to many texts, but I asked you to turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, to me, is a clinic on faith-based optimism. Now let me give you the background. David is already the rightful king. And I say the rightful king because for years he was the anointed king, but he was chased by Saul who tried to kill him. Finally, David is on the throne. He's already committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's already murdered her husband Uriah. He's going through a year of hiding it and covering up. He said it was like rottenness in his bones. He's confessed to Nathan the prophet. But we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. And it says, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. That one verse may alter your theology. It doesn't say the devil struck the child. It says the Lord struck the child. And David, therefore, did what we would all do. He pleaded with God, and he fasted, and he laid on his bed. And the elders of the house rose up and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat any food. Verse 18 says, then on the seventh day it came to pass, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and, and he would not hear our voice. Now the child's dead, he might do us harm. And when David saw his servants whispering, David perceived the child was dead. And David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is. And David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And then he went to his own house and he requested and they set food before him and he ate. When the servants saw this, they said, 
what is this you're doing? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but the child dies now and you're eating and back to normal? Verse 22, he said, listen, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord might be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What happens to an infant or a child that dies? Instant heaven. John MacArthur's written a book. If you ever want to comfort someone or read it, it's called Safe in the Arms of God. Listen to what David said. I can't, you know, he can't come to me. There's nothing I can do to bring him back. There's no reincarnation. But one day I'll go to him. It's the beauty of our faith. One day there'll be a grand reunion. This is such a compelling story. Uh, a few years ago, a friend's brother, who I know really well, had a son who I had spent vacation with in summers. His son was in a car accident, and I got word that he was on life support and he had brain damage. I have never received news like that, and it's gone well. I was devastated. I called Joe, and I said, Joe, I have no idea what you're going through. I don't know what the pain feels like, and buddy, I'm just here to pray with you because I know you're in hot water. He said something I'll never forget. He said, Bob, I'm not in hot water. I'm in boiling water. And this is a guy who works all day. He's an iron worker. He works with heroin addicts at night. He's a prayer warrior. I was devastated. The amazing thing is, this is one of the stories that actually turned out well. His son not only lived, but he's thriving today. He has a couple motor problems, but praise God, it was a wonderful answer to prayer. We had our whole church pray. David's in boiling water. He loves this child. But he uses it as a teachable moment for the people that are gathered. David said, well, the child was still alive. I had faith-based optimism. Notice this phrase, who can tell whether the Lord would be gracious? How in the world would David know if God was gracious or not? David didn't have a naivety or Pollyannish spirit. David's faith was based on three things, and I want you to write these down. Number one, David knew the character of God. You know, David was a reflective man. He was a man's man. He wrote in a journal which we call the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, he says, there's tears on my bed and, and I'm distraught. Uh, Bono said it this way one time, the lead singer of you too, paraphrase the Psalms, God, where are you when I need you? That's a lot of the Psalms. It's all about David's trials and struggles. But in Psalm 103, he said, you know, there's benefits to serving God. Famous Psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. He forgives our iniquities and sin and he heals all our diseases. David believed God could heal. Who can tell whether the Lord would be gracious? Second thing is, David trusted the word of God. Where's your trust this morning? Is it the latest cool worship song? The latest cool conference you went to? The latest book that someone wrote? Or is it in the word of God? The longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. Verse 9 says, how can a man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the ways, your ways and your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. And finally, David had past experience. It's very important. When Goliath was tormenting the men of Israel, David, this scrawny, ruddy little kid comes out, and he tells Saul, uh, I want to go out and fight Goliath. And Saul's like, no way, are you kidding me? 
And he tells Saul, he said, look, your servant has killed both lions and bears, and I'll kill this uncircumcised Philistine the same way. Now, I don't want to underscore the story. It's still the greatest upset in all history. And if the Broncos win today, it'll be the second greatest upset in all history. I'm only joking. And uh, David says something here that's staggering. Now, we all know he's a little shepherd boy. And his dad would put him in out in the field alone. We know that. And shepherds would feed and protect, right? Small animals that would come to attack sheep. In no way could his dad have ever known that he was fighting bears and lions. I mean, it's unthinkable. I mean, if my son was out there, I would be distraught. Now, think about it. If he had somebody else out there, you don't have to outrun the bear and lions. You have to outrun the other person, right? But if you're alone, what do you do? Well, guess how David killed lions and bears? With a slingshot. He was a slinger. Slingers in this time could hit a mark 100 yards away on a bullseye. That's why he went after Goliath with a slingshot and five smooth stones. Goliath was mechanized infantry. He was slow, and David knew that. Then he reveals the source of his strength. He says to Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Please listen, everybody in this room. David had confidence in himself. There's nothing wrong with that. David's past experience, he knew he was a slinger. He, he, he knew that he could take Goliath. Doesn't mean he wasn't in boiling water looking at this Philistine. His optimism was based on faith. Here's what scares me half to death. I have watched in 35 years Christians thinking they're acting on faith when in reality it's presumption. Presumption is, oh, I'll quit my job and then God will put me in full-time ministry. Presumption is, if I do this, God will do that. It's like a pastor saying, let's build a church that's way too big or let's start a TV ministry that no one thinks they need. It's like a man or a woman saying, if we just believe God will give us the house we want, the kids we want, the career we want, if we just have faith. And a lot of times it's presumption. Jesus, in one of the most sober things he ever said, and he was talking about discipleship, by the way, he said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must hate brother, mother, father, and even his own life. In other words, following Jesus is an all-in proposition. You need to count the cost. But then he uses a common-sense illustration. He says, which of you who's going to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether you have enough to finish it, lest after you have laid the foundation and you're not able to finish all who see it will mock him. And then he talks about a king fighting 20,000. You've got to make sure you have the right troops. Christianity is not a naivety. It's not a Pollyannish spirit that if, that if we bet the farm, God will move. If you bet the farm, listen, you may lose the farm, okay? Here's what faith-based optimism is. Faith-based optimism is you know what God has done in the past, Gideon know what God did among Israel when he took them out of Egypt. You take God at his word, and then over time you let God speak to you, and then one day you do have to step out. But it's not blind faith. You're not stepping out on some word that you heard for the first time or a street sign. All those things can be part of the process. But so much of the time, what we call faith is presumption. Faith-based optimism to me, and I wrote this down, is the confident expectation that an all-powerful God is at work, even in this fallen world, to redeem it and to bring good stuff out of it. 
It's the belief that a good God is intimately involved and aware of my life, my future, and the role I play in bringing redemption to the little part of the world he's entrusted to me. That's faith-based optimism. One day I started out in faith and started this church. But it grew out of a Bible study. I went to ministry training. I had a sense of calling. I was a youth pastor. It wasn't blind optimism. It was faith-based optimism. And hanging over the whole thing was, how do I know whether the Lord would be gracious or not? I never knew if this would all work out. David didn't know, nor did Gideon, but they were willing to step out in faith. Let me say something parenthetically about healing. It's not the purpose of my talk today, but I want to address it because a lot of people have questions. I want to say unequivocally, I believe God heals. I not only believe God heals, I believe every gift of the Spirit we see in the New Testament is for today. I really do. I believe, James, that if someone's sick, you anoint them with oil. The prayer of faith can save the sick. I also know that in 35 years of walking with God, I've seen a lot of people who haven't been healed. And here's the problem you're going to have eventually is that when not everyone gets healed, you've got to answer why. And the blame can only go two ways, with God or the person who didn't get healed. Either the person didn't have enough faith or you're going to be angry at God or not believe his word anymore. Let me say this. There's a lot of bad fruit I've experienced over the years from both sides of the blaming. Sometimes we need to take a different perspective. We live in an age that no one has ever seen that we call modern medicine. Uh, My sister-in-law is Filipino. One day she looked at us, she goes, I don't get you people. She goes, I grew up in the East and all we wanted was Western medicine. Give me two of leaves so I can get rid of this headache. She goes, then I come over here and all you guys talk about is Eastern healing remedies that we know don't work over there. (laughs) Skill physicians, life expectancy like no one's ever seen before. And then I hate to even say this, you know, we all got to die at some point. Time to be born and time to die. Pastor Bob, I don't know what to do. My grandmother died. She was 95. And I'm like, you know, I lost my grandmother too, but 95's not bad. You know, she's been... She's been playing with house money for a long, long time. (laughs) Now, I promised you in the series that I would not only give you Bible characters, but I would dip into my biography bag. And this is a book I read in high school. It was mandatory. I didn't read it on my own. And uh, you all know the story. It's Helen Keller. Helen Keller was deaf and blind at an early age. A woman named Ann Sullivan came into her life at an early age. And some of you may have seen the movie, taught her amazing things. Uh, She became the first deaf and blind person to get a bachelor's degree. She wrote a dozen books. And I didn't remember this until I read Mark Batterson's book. Guess what the title of her biography or her manifesto is? Optimism. Optimism. Staggering. Can I give you two quotes from her book? She said, no pessimist ever discovered the secret of the stars or sailed an uncharted land. She said optimism is the harmony, the synergy of man's spirit and the spirit of God pronouncing good works. That comes from a deaf and blind woman. Unbelievable. Several years ago was the anniversary of the Lewis and Clark expedition of them pushing west in the United States. Stephen Ambrose wrote a book called Undaunted Courage, which I read. Because when I was in school, I didn't care about these things, and now I do, so I thought I'd read up on that. 
He chronicles the unbelievable problems they faced moving west. Unfamiliar territory, hunger, heat exhaustion, fatigue, desertion, morale problems, hostile enemies, illness, and death. You know, people died along the way. They reached a critical junction where they came to the Continental Divide. And Meriwether Lewis thought he would climb these bluffs and then he would see a passageway of water that would take him to the Pacific Ocean and the bliss they were looking for. And you probably all know what he saw instead. He was the first man to view the Rockies. And he looked back at the caravans and the people that were already fatigued and dying. How are we going to get them over these mountains? And he knew, he knew not what lied on the other side. I look at all these biographies, I look at all these stories, and you know what it reminds me of? Like Jacob, we all walk with a limp. If you could look across the aisle and hear someone's story, you would know they have disabilities, they face the Rockies, they've been in boiling water, we're all going to spend time in the land of Oz like Job did. No one gets a free pass in life. It's the way it rolls out, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But here's the critical point. How will we respond? Anybody can believe God in good times. Anybody can sit in a place like this and enjoy God. But what happens when you're facing the Rockies? How will we respond? Will we respond with negativity, blaming God, people, ministries, church? Or will we respond with courage and resiliency and faith-based optimism, believing God has done this before and he's with us? And I want to give you the words of Jesus because that's all that matters. Jesus clears this up in John 16, when he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In me. It's the one thing he promised. In me there will be peace. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Sounds pretty pessimistic, right? But then he said, be of good cheer, be joyful, be happy. Why? Because I've overcome the world. That's faith-based optimism. Jesus said, no matter what age you live in, there's going to be a lot to be pessimistic about. So we live in 2016. We have ISIS, terrorism, mass shootings, the economy, cancer, candidates for the 2016 election, <laughs> Sixers, Eagles, Flyers, and Phillies. We have a lot to be pessimistic about. <laughs> but Jesus said, he's overcome the world. When he came into the world, John said there was this light that the world had seen for the first time. For the first time, the world saw hope. Lepers and priests, tax collectors, farmers, prostitutes saw something they had never saw. This light had come into a dark world. There was joy. There was peace. 120 people were filled in an upper room, and they sensed this peace. And they sensed for the first time in a permanent way the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn in Ephesians, he's the down payment of our inheritance. We have now become the fit habitation for the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He's the prime mover. He's the filler of our souls. He's the bomb of Gilead. He's, he's the one leading us and guiding us and speaking to us. Romans 8 to me is the greatest weapon in a believer's arsenal. Now we all love to quote verse 28 that we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But I want you to read that verse on your own. I want you to think it through. It does not say all things are good in a Christian's life. It doesn't even say that the end of all things will be good. In fact, can I tell you what it really says? 
in many ways, what it says is all things may happen to you and me. Very terrible things, to be honest with you. How do I know that? Because later in the chapter, he said, there's nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ, not famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. He named them because they were all possible to all believers through all time. None of us are immune. The difference is, like Gideon and like David, there is a God working in us and walking with us, and he's working it all together, and in the end, there will be a very good story. When Kelvin Cochran and I went out to lunch, we talked about racism. I had told him all the books I had read on racism, and we talked about a lot of different things, and he said, Bob, the way I look at racism in America is Romans 8.28. Slavery was horrific, should have never happened. But, but now that it has happened, God has redeemed us, and there's a group of African Americans who now live in this country who would have never gotten here. And I said, why? I actually said, you think you got fired for writing that devotional? You say that, and they'll fire you from almost everything you're doing right now. I said, how come nobody else holds that view? And listen to this. He said, because no one is a Christian. The people you're hearing on TV, that this is the spirit of God. All things, terrible things, somehow God's weaving a tapestry and maybe even until we get to heaven, we'll never understand it. His ways really are higher than our ways. So let's review this. Do you have a sense of purpose in life? Do you answer the question, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I sucking air? Can you answer the question? Can you put in the box what, drives your life like we talked about the first week, Bob Buford, and I hope it's a cross. Do you have intimacy with God? Do you have capital F friends that we talked about? Do you have courage when life doesn't turn out the way you planned? Do you have a vital optimism that Prager said is a moral obligation and that Paul and Peter and the early church had? Do you have resiliency that will carry you for the long haul? These are life's necessary ingredients. A great cloud of witnesses have gone before us. I want to leave you with one final thought. Do not let these words fall to the ground. 2016 can be your year. Take one more step and make a $10 investment. I've been pushing this book, Simplicity. It radically affected my life. 10 practices to unclutter your soul. We're hearing in Journeyland that second graders have Smartphones. The leading new users of pornography are middle schoolers. Every parent needs to hear that. We need to turn off. We need to get off the grid. Bob Buford, halftime. Every man, every woman, somewhere in middle life needs to read this book and reboot. We can lead you to water. We can tell you how good it tastes. But you got to drink. And you're drinking from a deep well and a good God. Every message of this series, we've ended with a song that's been our prayer. And this is the prayer to end the whole series. So let's all stand.